We are here because we know the outcomes in our lives are within our control. That taking absolute ownership of how we eat, sleep, train, think, and connect with each other is how we'll optimize our health and happiness. That chasing excellence is how we grab hold of what is possible. Our mission is to live on the run, always chasing, never stopping. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Chasing Excellence. Ben, we have a special guest today and I think next week as well. Colin O'Brady is here. Colin, how are you? Uh, I'm great. Great to be here with you guys. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for being here, Colin. Uh, Colin is a 10-time world record-breaking explorer. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Impossible First, and his new book is called The 12-Hour Walk. Invest one day, conquer your mind, and unlock your best life. Again, thank you for being here, Colin. I'm excited to chat with you. Um, You sent us a copy of this book a little while ago. Ben and I have had a chance to do what the book says. And so I'm excited to talk to you about uh, our experience and and why this book and why this particular prescription. Before we get into that, though, I wanted to ask you kind of a big picture question. And it's, it might seem like an obvious one, but you and I were emailing a little bit back and forth before recording here. And I couldn't help but notice that and I just alluded to it. But in your email signature, you've got you, you, you describe yourself as an explorer which I think is just is like this wonderful job title that nobody gets to have. <laughs> um, and so I'd love to just talk to you about like, what does that, and it seems simple, but like, what does that mean, right? We live in a world that feels like everything's been explored. Like we feel that people have been everywhere. And so what does it mean in, in this time, in this age to be an explorer? Yeah, no, uh, I, I certainly uh, think that exploration has, of course, shifted and evolved and will continue to shift and evolve as I guess we upload our brains into the metaverse soon and they can just explore that way. Uh, <laughs> um, but certainly, you know, I've done most of my adventuring or exploring, you know, over the last decade, which is certainly far different than, uh, you know, Ernest Shackleton taking a boat and trying to see what's down in Antarctic waters and overwintering and, you know, not returning home for several years and no one knows if he's alive or dead or, you know, things like like that of that nature, that sort of golden age of exploration. And of course, you can go back, you know, hundreds of years before that, um, of course, to the Magellans and um, obviously controversially, uh, you know, Christopher Columbus and things things of that nature where people were actually going to parts of the world where they literally didn't know where they were going to end up next. And so mm-hmm. th- those days are long gone, uh, of course, with satellite phones and, and, you know, satellite imagery and GPS and things like that. I have been fortunate enough to uh, do a couple things that no one in history had previously accomplished in my exploration. Um, you know, the f- world's first solo unsupported and human powered crossing of Antarctica back in 2018, and then followed that up by being uh, part of a team that were the first people in history to row a boat uh, across Drake Passage. So from the southern tip of South America to Antarctica, you know, 40 foot waves, crazy ocean currents, uh, icebergs and whatnot, and a little rowboat. No one had completed that. But when I think about uh, your question sort of a little bit uh, zoomed out a little bit further is I think my deepest curiosity is exploring human potential um, and, you know, pushing my own boundaries and my own limits um, and and really finding, you know, what I'm made of and really what the power of of our minds and bodies and souls are. You know, there's this new book, The 12-Hour Walk. I know we'll we'll talk more about it, but really is an exploration or discovery through my own exploration in Antarctica but really is a call to action for all of us to, to take a day, to tap into the power of our minds. Because what I've learned over and over again through my own personal exploration is 
not just me, but every single human, all of us. I believe we all have reservoirs of untapped potential. Um, and most of that, I believe, starts with our minds. I love to say the most important muscle any of us has is the six inches between our ears. Um, and so when I think about exploration more globally in my job title, so to speak, it's yes, it's very easy. The guy who climbs the mountains and goes across the continents and rows the boats and the things like that. But at its core, that is all just an exploration that I think an exploration that we're all on, which is an exploration of this thing we call life and our own human potential within the context of that. What's, what's super interesting is I, I think that there's a lot of people that talk about human potential and they talk it in an abstract way and like, where's the credibility for where they're coming from? Potentially, you know, they've achieved a lot in business or, um, you know, uh, their, their greatness in athletics. I think that you've done this in a really unique and probably the most physically challenging way in terms of like exploring your own potential. And I'd love to get into some of the, cause I think it's, when you hear someone talk about this, it's, it's easy to kind of brush past and here's another talk about human potential. And here's another talk about tapping in. Here's another talk about um, how we, we limit ourselves. But when you start to understand the positions that you put yourself through, it really brings a lot of credibility to the, to the messaging. And I'd love to kind of just um, walk through some of these, the, the 10 um, world records that you hold, because I think that it, it, it's fascinating. And to point of like it being fascinating, it your journey through Antarctica, um, I followed it live on Instagram when you were doing it. I can't remember how I got how I got turned on to it, who sent it to me, but it was I, I remember, the way I remember it is just a friend was like, you gotta fall, you gotta check this what's going on right now. It was the I'm not a I, I'm not a big fan of social media, but if there ever was a purpose for it, that was it. To be able to be like real time. And the one that got me was, you know, this one night you're like the wind is howling and you're by yourself and you've been on this journey for um, weeks and a point of exhaustion, negative X degrees, and you're trying to hold on to your tent. And if the tent blo blows away, which I don't think people realize, like if the tent blows away for most of us, we go to REI in our SUVs <laughs> and we get another tent. Yeah. Your tent blows away, you die. Like it's literally, that, it's that black and white. Like you can't chase the thing down. You die of exposure within hours. And when people talk about, I just love that because it's like, people talk about pressure. And pressure in most cases, I think is manufactured and it's fake. In most situations, it, it, the anxiety that most people have is just, social pressures, but it's not life or death. And you've been at that moment. And I wonder if you could just bring, uh, bring us through, well, let's start with that. Let's start with the Antarctica thing. Cause I think that that's certainly the thing that you, you know, brought you to the, 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 the fame that you have now, um, phenomenal book with the impossible first. And if anybody hasn't, I would, I recommend going back and if you still have it on there, Colin, if you do, but go back and follow through those days where you're posting yeah. one day, which I'm sure it was actually probably Jenna, right? Jenna's your wife. Yeah. So the was way she actually we, posting? Yeah. So the way that we did it, um, was, uh, I had this really kind of rudimentary sat phone, Iridium go that can just basically send some text based stuff and a really, mm. really low res image. It would take forever to upload it. Um, 
but I would write the posts and send this grainy image. But of course, I wasn't actually connected to Instagram or the internet or anything like that. So she was then taking that um, and, and reposting it. She she said she didn't change anything materially, but in my exhausted state of time again, you can believe it or not, I had some probably some some mispunctuation and some slurred words in there. So she uh, maybe cleaned me up, cleaned me up a sentence or two here and there. But yeah, I mean, it was my words written from there, sent out. Um, but yeah, you know, there's so much what you just said there and certainly a lot we could talk about in terms of Antarctica. And it's so, I'm so glad that you followed along. I, I'm, I'm the same as you, which I use social media, but, uh, something that I've been necessary evil and, but I love being able to share these expeditions with the world from these far off places. Um, as, as I think there, there is some amazing things as, as your first question states is it's different living in these modern times, right? You're not Shackleton away for three years doing this, but you know, I have an ability to pull people into parts of Antarctica or parts of this journey that they wouldn't normally see otherwise. You know, I've done a bunch of nonprofit work. I've ultimately had over a million students enrolled in nonprofit programs around my expeditions. And to bring these, you know, kids from all parts of the world, places, you know, lower incomes, you know, different just levels of, of uh, economic prosperity and just and levels of curiosity into these visceral environments um, it is amazing use case for technology. Um, so I do love it from that standpoint. Um, you know, in terms of what you're saying about Antarctica, you're absolutely right. So before Antarctica, I raced triathlon professionally for many years. And I remember making that transition into exploration at the levels that I have now done and noticing the difference. Like both are endurance sports, both are intense, both are high performance, trying to be the best in the world kind of stuff. But there were many times where I'd fly to the other side of the world for a World Cup race against some of the best guys in the world in triathlon and halfway through the bike or the run, it'd be a hot day or I'd be having a bad day or something like that. And I just step off the race course. I would just DNF. I mean, I didn't do that a lot, but I certainly did. It's like kind of actually part of the sport where you just be like, yeah, I'm having a bad day. You know, live to fight another day tomorrow. I'm not going to put my bury my body right now. I'm going to step off the race. I'm going to raise my hand and just be like, yeah, I'm done. You step out there in Antarctica by yourself, walking across a frozen continent, you're 30 some days in this expedition, you're in the middle of a whiteout storm with minus 40 degrees temperature, minus 70 degree wind chill. You don't get to just be like, yeah, you know what? Like, I'm good. Like, <laughs> I'm out of here, right? My my rescue protocol is there was, you know, this company called ALE that runs some logistics down there that I did have some sat phone communication with, assuming my sat phone even worked because sometimes it would run out of battery or be too cold to even operate. But assuming I could work it, I could get in touch with them. But they even told me before I left off, they're like, look, there's big parts of this continent where there's so many crevasses and sastrugi and big this that we, we couldn't land within 100 miles of you. So great. I'm in a bad situation. They land within 100 miles of me. It's going to take them five days to walk to wherever I am. They're going to find my body. They're not going to find, you know, they're they're not going to find an, an alive, you know, person. Um, not to mention in the middle of when something would go wrong, as you mentioned, in a storm where I'm setting up my tent with my frozen hands and exhausted state. Um, you don't just call someone and be like, oh, hey, come pick me up. My tent blew away. It's like there's a whiteout going on in Antarctica. They're not even taking a plane off, let alone trying to land it somewhere in the middle of this continent, in the middle of this ice field, you know, to, to pick me up. So there is a definite feeling of real aloneness um, that I don't think you can find uh, in a lot of other places uh, in the world and certainly not in our day to day lives. And that definitely ratchets the stakes up. Now, I think that there's two ways to react to that. One is total and abject fear, right? And and I, I am a human being. I had all sorts of fear out there. 
But that fear can either be debilitating or it can be almost meditative. And I and I leaned more into the meditative side of that, of just the stakes being so high made me so focused, just so dialed in on all the little things, realizing what I look, when I really look at that anaerobic project, I was out there alone for 54 days. My sled was 375 pounds when I started pulling it because I had no resupplies of food or fuel. That's what unsupported means. And... I basically had to survive with just what I had there with me. And what I realized after a day or two out there, even I was like, oh, success in this looks like consistently being able to execute a thousand plus tasks every single day. From the second I wake up, I wake up, I light my stove, I put snow in the pot, I melt it into water, I put my right foot on, I put my left boot on, I zip this up, I take my tent down, I put it into my sled and on and on and on. Then I pull my sled, then I take the sled and I get the food in, I get hydrated. Then I set my tent up at the end of the day, but I make sure each knot is tied perfectly so it doesn't blow away. And you do that once with life and death stakes over a 17 hour day, it was 12 hours of pulling my sled, five hours of chores, you know, cumulative on either side. And then you wake up on day two and go, can I do that again? And can I do that again? And can I do that again? And can I do that again? Day-to-day -day life allows us to make a few mistakes. You know, you write an email that's got a few, uh, you know, spelling errors in it. Or, you know, you, you walk out your front door and you turn right and instead of you turn left and you get lost, you know, driving to work or to an appointment or something like that. The stakes aren't that big of a deal. But in this Antarctica context, every little thing like that had huge stakes associated with them. But I also think those stakes allowed me to tap into flow, allowed me to just be hyper-focused in this meditative state because I could not allow my, or literally could not to survive, allow my brain to be distracted by all the sort of extra things that we are normally distracted by myself included in our day-to-day -day lives. So what'd you do for, I, I, I so it's cool watching, listening to and hearing about your, your physical training, which your trainer's wacky and I, <laughs> I totally relate to him. I loved it. But he would have you like put your hands, do workouts, but then put your hands in ice buckets and then tie knots with frozen, which man, talk about sports specific prep, like well yeah. done. But how do you train for, is it just the other expeditions you've done that allowed you to train for the mental aspect in the solitude? No, I think it's more than that. And, you know, it, it's been a few years since my Antarctica crossing and I've, I've done some other big expeditions since then. But certainly up to that point in my life, I remember finishing the Antarctic crossing. I actually finished on December 26th, the day after Christmas, 2018. And I wrote about this a little bit in The Impossible First once I, you know, wrote a full memoir about the, the this crossing. But I also wrote in my journal every single day. And on the day that I finished, so it's kind of the most raw, this is not this is me sharing for myself in my tent, still on the ice, like the most like in the moment reflection. Obviously, it's taken me months and years to integrate the totality of the full experience. I wrote to myself, you know, I was 33 years old at the time. I wrote, you know, this feels like my Mona Lisa. This feels like my masterpiece, at least up to this point in my life. And I went on further, not to say that I'm Da Vinci by any means, but just to say that this required every single part of my life before this for me to do this. So it wasn't just, oh, I got my body physically dialed and I pulled a sled across Antarctica. The solitude of 54 days, the intensity of the environment literally required me to draw on everything. And so I go, some people say, how long did you train for Antarctica? And it's easy to be like, well, I, I set the goal a year before that and I trained for that year and I did the prep and whatever. But the truth of the matter is, and even in my own honest journal, it was like, this was my life's work up to this point. Meaning 
I swam for four hours a day, six days a week from the time I was six years old, basically. And it turns out that staring at the bottom of a, a black line on the bottom of a swimming pool in essentially in solitude, just because there's no sensory inputs, you can't, t- it's not like team sports where you're chatting with your buddy, throwing a ball around or something like that. Like that trained my mind up to a certain point. Then I got introduced to Vipassana meditation in 2010, long before I'd ever dreamed about going to Antarctica, and ended up sitting these these 10-day silent meditation retreats. Having never meditated a minute in my life, I went several times in 2011, 2012, 2017 to sit 10 days of silence. I didn't know in that moment that I was training, you know, basically training to be alone in silence, but there's no way I could have taken on 54 days of solitude and intensity like that had I not done that. And I can go on and on and on about, you know, different lessons of being burned in this fire, different lessons I learned. Basically, I, at some point over those 54 days, drew on every single lesson, every ounce of strength, every learning that I possibly had to just barely, barely on my last bite of food, get to the other side of Antarctica. And and said more simply, if I hadn't had any of the experiences in my life of those 33 years beforehand, I would have fallen short of reaching the other side. Have you ever seen the show Alone? Yeah, I love that show. I just finished the newest one, on, well, at least the newest one on Netflix. I, I, don't, I haven't watched it on History, where it actually is, I guess, but I've watched it when they replay them on So Netflix. I've only seen a couple episodes. My, my father-in-law loves it, and he's like, you got to watch it. I've tried to watch a couple episodes of it. I just, <laughs> I'm not a TV guy, but I'm trying to get... But the thing I find fascinating, and he's kind of given me this because I haven't watched long enough. He's like, these guys are amazing, and they create these amazing structures. So for people that are, um, haven't seen it, People go into dropped in the woods alone, punchline, um, and they essentially have to survive by themselves. And what ends up happening is the people that have the skills, a lot of them actually end up tapping out, not because of injury or lack of food or shelter. It's literally because of the solitude and that they are lonely. And it's it speaks to this like you hear that the the worst form of possible torture that you can experience as a human being has nothing to do with physical it's the solitude solitary confinement is the worst form of torture and for anybody that particularly now in society like that seems it's i don't know it sounds kind of cool to me to be alone <laughs> and and i like I, i'm curious to hear your take on that aspect because did you find that challenging was the the communication you had with jenna and the, the 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 logistics support team enough to feel like you were connected, or did you um, find that as one of the massive challenges that you had to overcome in the Antarctica trip? Look, you know that that TV show does a great job. You explained it perfectly well, which is people tap out because they're just like, I can't be out here alone anymore. You know, as humans, we are um, social, social creatures in general, right? Like we, the fabric of our DNA is to be in groups and tribes, um, communities. And that's, I think, how most of us are wired. Even people that are more introverted are used to having, you know, human contact with others for sure. Um, And that extends, you know, even further. Solitary confinement in prison, you know, that is solitude. But there's all sorts of stories of guys getting trying to get in fights with prison guards after being in solitary confinement because they actually want the physical touch of another human being, even if it's in an intense, you know, fight or whatever. Right. Um, so yes, as humans, we are programmed for that. Interestingly enough for me, yes, that was a massive challenge. And certainly the, you know, couple minutes of a crackly sat phone communication with my wife was not enough to make me feel, you know, connected to her. But what I will say, you know, connected to her in the way that I would like to be on a day-to-day basis. What I will say is this, um, 
the solitude was challenging. In the end, it was also a beautiful gift. And certainly that's why I espouse this in the 12 hour walk, which is I don't think we should all be alone all the time. But I do think that we should be alone some of the time to be able to tap into our own mindset, our own psyche, etc. I'm excited to talk to you guys about your experience with the 12 hour walk. But the other thing that happened to me was that I intentionally deleted almost all my music, almost all my podcasts, knowing that at the beginning of it, it would be really hard. Like, it'd be like, wait, why'd you delete your podcast? You'd be listening to a book on tape right now. You could be having, you know, listen to your guys' voice, inspire me about some conversation you're having, right? Like I had an iPhone with me. I could have just downloaded like gigs and gigs of that stuff. But what I thought was the most interesting thing, and we get back to your first question about exploration, was I wanted to explore my own psyche. And I thought, if I try to not distract myself, at first it will be hard. But my thesis was, will it also allow me to tap into flow and deeper places in my own mindset? And yes, in those first few days when I realized I deleted all my music and podcasts and I couldn't take back that decision, I was like, man, that was a stupid idea, man. You're an idiot. Like, you know, it's really lonely. But by the end, you know, by the end of that Antarctic crossing, I tapped into some of the deepest flow states of my entire life. The last, you know, the last couple of days, I ended up not even setting up my tent and pulling my sled for 33 hours straight, 77 miles straight on my last few bites of food. And when I look back on those 33 hours, they were some of the most blissful times of my entire life because I was so emotionally and spiritually tapped in. So much so, and this sounds a little bit silly, but I actually felt connected to my family, to my wife, to my community, to the nonprofit and the students that were following along my project that I actually reached my hands out um, fully wide on the ice and started saying out loud, infinite love, infinite love, infinite love, because mm-hmm. um, that's what I felt connected to. And some people would call that God or the universe or the spirit or whatever that is. But I felt connected deeply to purpose and fulfillment. And when I got back from Antarctic Crossing, the first thing, there was so much press and media um, that had kind of spun about around it. I was sort of not aware of that while I was out there on the ice. But I get back and instead of flying home, Jenna tells me, actually, we're flying to New York City and you're going to be live on the Today Show, which is humbling and great. But I literally haven't spoken to anyone for however many months. (laughs) The first thing I do is fly to Manhattan to be on live television. It's like somewhat, you know, overwhelming. And that same day, um, a lot of friends in New York City, the same day, um, a bunch of friends invited me over to a friend's townhouse and, you know, close friends and friends of friends, about 100 people at this townhouse just said, hey, would you mind telling us the story? And I'm four days off the ice. I mean, I literally have not gotten gone home yet, haven't slept. I haven't really thought about this. I mean, I've thought about it, but I haven't been like, how do I tell this story, et cetera, right? It's just raw. And someone sitting in that room, do a little fireside chat, raises their hand and says, you must have been so lonely. Essentially, the question you asked, right? You must have been so lonely out there. I thought about it and I said, you guys all live in New York City, right? And like, yeah, we live in New York City. I said, how many, raise your hand in this room if you know the name of the person who you share a wall with in your apartment building. Nobody raises their hand. Hmm. I say, raise your hand the last time when you were in an elevator, you looked somebody in the eye and introduced yourself or on the subway. And someone goes, we're New Yorkers, man. We would never do that, right? And I said, here's the thing. Was I alone out there? Yes. Was I potentially the most isolated, solitary human being on the entire planet over the last 54 days? Yes. But I actually felt connected. I felt tapped in. However, I have spent my, a lot of my life in big cities like New York City. And I know that even if you're surrounded by 10 million people and you don't talk to anybody, you don't interact, you don't look anyone in the eyes, like you can be lonely. 
And so I think there's a difference between, at least from my experience, a difference between being physically alone and being surrounded by 10 million people in New York City and being lonely. Um, and that is something to, I think, you know, you alluded to earlier, technology and modern society and things like that can drive us to be surrounded by others yet actually feeling alone. Whereas it turns out you can go to the bottom of the world by yourself and feel entirely connected to humanity at whole. And so that was an, an interesting insight from the experience for sure as it relates to loneliness. Have you ever had that level of connection in, in other aspects of your life, whether it's another adventure or another moment? Yeah. You know, I think that, um, I have found that moment, you know, it's different, but similar. I think that was just the deep, deep, deep cut. And it's such a beautiful, you know, it kind of sits on an Island as its own, you know, really special experience. But I have certainly found that on a meditation pillow. I've certainly found that, uh, dancing ecstatically with a room full of people. I love to dance, right. You know, like great music dance, just like moving my body, just happy, blissfully peaceful oneness. Um, you know, I found that in other expeditions for sure. In special moments, you know, outdoors, not necessarily always the moment I broke the world record, the moment that I reached the summit, but just in surrounded by natural beauty, doing what I love with high consequence, et cetera, um, in these moments in between. And so, yeah, I mean, I, and I fundamentally believe that feeling, that connection is that oneness. And that's certainly what I talk about in the 12 hour walk. I do believe that as humans, we all have this ability to tap into that. And I actually, the 12 hour walk is born from an idea of like, oh, it turns out you don't have to go all the way to Antarctica to feel this. It's that we have, we are so distracted and I'm, I'm as guilty as charged of this. I have my phone in my hand. I use social media. I'm getting these dopamine hits. I've got emails. I've got calls. I got to be on this podcast. I got, you know, like I'm guilty of this as well. And I'm not trying to say, so be a, the actual answer is be a hermit, move to the Himalayas, sit in a cave and whatever. Like, no, I, I want to be a part of modern society, but I do think there is a time and a place to set that aside for a second and remember, oh, I have this power within me. It's not, we're chasing so much external um, gratification, things, goods, experiences, et cetera. And that oneness, that really tapped in level, more often than not, can be found truly from within by just turning the phone off, walking out your front door, putting your phone in airplane mode, in this case, going for a walk by yourself for 12 hours. But there's other ways to tap into that. Um, and they're more often than not really simple and really accessible and pretty much free and all the things. You don't have to fly to the other side of the world and buy the thing and go to the thing and you know whatever. You can actually just be with yourself. And it's funny how that being with ourselves in that silence, even just for a day or half a day, like the 12-hour walk talks about, can be one of the scariest things for anyone. You know, people are like, oh, I'd rather fly to a country where I don't speak a language and go to this and have this experience or whatever. Like that's outside of my comfort zone. But like, whoa, Ben, day by my like by myself, by myself. Like that's that's a scary thought for a lot of people, but it's powerful for that reason. Yeah, connectedness is a big thing that we we talk a lot about. Um, tell them I'll I'll, I'll call Sorry. them back later. Sorry about yeah. that. <laughs> um, so I'm. I'm I'm excited. I'm curious to dig in on this a little bit. The um, in the way you said, it's like accessible to everyone. It's free. It's you don't have to go to do some crazy thing. And you mentioned that the practice that you've done with um, silent retreats and I, I and a type of meditation. Can you tell me the type of meditation? Vipassana, V-I-P-A-S-S-A-N-A. -S -S -A -A. What can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so Vipassana meditation is, you know, a long-standing uh, Buddhist meditation practice. It's, it's non-secular, so it's, it's, you know, available to anyone. It's not like some dogmatic thing. It's literally observing your breath in stillness and silence. That's um, been taught in India and that part of the, uh, Central Asia for thousands of years um, and brought to the West over the last, you know, 50 or so years. Um there's lots of different forms of it, but the form I was taught was this 10 day silent meditation retreat is sort of that, the jumping off point to that completely free to go. There's 250 centers around the world. You can Google it, Vipassana, and you find all these centers completely, like I said, completely free to go. Um, and it's a really simple practice as are most of these things. It's like, wait, what are you going to do? You're going to sit there in silence and meditate all day. And I, there's a little more to it than that. It's broken up in these hour long chunks or whatever, but basically 12 hours a day for 10 days in a row, you meditate. And the main instruction is sit there on your meditation pillow and observe your breath and observe the sensations of your body objectively. Don't, if something feels good, don't try to crave it. If, if your back gets tired, don't start to have an aversion to that and realize that our minds are capable of actually choosing how we react to things. And the teaching goes deep into self-awareness, essentially, through through a, a visceral experience, somatic experience. But moreover, it, it goes into the ability of realizing, and I love to say, like, life's hard, man. Like, life is going to be hard. Like, I don't care who you are, um, if, if you're rich, if you're surrounded by love, if all these things, like, you go through an entire life, you are going to experience some tougher moments, as well as high highs. And we get to choose in those moments how we react to those things. I'm fond of saying, you know, pain is mandatory, but suffering is optional. You know, another way I, I begin to think about, I started thinking about this after my Antarctica crossing, which is I've started to think about sort of an experience, any moment to moment experience in life on the scale of one to 10, you know, one being our lowest low moments. You know, there was moments where I was crying on the ice. There was moments I was afraid for my life. There was moments when I was starving and hungry, right? I've had many other ones throughout my life. And the tens are the high highs. The tens are crossing Antarctica, getting to the other side. I did it. You know, there were the, you know, take it away from the ice example. It's the birth of your first child. It's falling in love. It's skiing deep powder with your best friend on the most epic mountain, whatever it is that just lights you up. I got thumbs up on the deep powder. I love it. Um, <laughs> the, you know, we know what tens are. When we experience tens, our brain immediately goes to, I want more tens. I want to experience more tens. Tens are amazing. I want more tens. Sure. So do I. But when I think about tens, I start to realize that most of the tens that I've experienced in my life are not in spite of ones, but actually because of ones, because of my ability to accept that I might experience some ones sometime. Meaning I don't cross Antarctica and get to the other side without also being afraid and hungry and tired and all these things throughout that. That's what gives the one or gives a 10. But unfortunately in our life too, too commonly, we get stuck in what I call this zone of comfortable complacency, particularly in our modern society. Like I call it between the four and six range. And it's like, yeah, I go to this job. I don't love it. I don't hate it. It's just a job. It pays the bills, but I spend a lot of my time doing it. But it's just a five every day. It's five, 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 five. Or you're in a relationship and it's not toxic. It's not like abusive or anything like that. But like you're kind of just cohabitating, coexisting with one another. There's not a lot of like passion and just a five every single day. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some good days to have some fives. I'm not saying only live in the extremes. But if you only live in that zone of comfortable complacency, always within your comfort zone, most people do that because they're so afraid of having any downside risk, any discomfort, any pain. But the second you hedge so hard against the ones and the twos, you take the nines and the tens off the table as well. 
And so when I inevitably find myself in situations that invite the ones or when I'm feeling a one moment, don't get me wrong, I'm struggling. I'm in pain. It sucks. I don't necessarily want to be there. But I have realized through Vipassana meditation, through my other expeditions and things like that, when I start to feel a one, I actually can allow myself to smile deep down inside because I go, oh, I'm feeling a one right now. And you know what that means? This is opening up the door for me to experience a 10 on the other side of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a break here. Oh. I know. I'm sorry. Ben, hold your question. Colin, we're going to we're gonna have you again. For, we're going to have you back for a part two. But I want to, and specifically, I want to start talking about the 12-hour walk, the book, and as well as Ben and I's experience on it. But uh, uh, thank you, everybody out there for listening. Come on back next week for our continued conversation with Colin. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews. We'll be back, like I said, next week. You can get every episode of Chasing Excellence wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Until next time, thank you for listening.